Hey, Prime members, you can listen to Face the Nation with Margaret Brennan ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the app today. This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you can have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. Rakuten's Big Give Week is back with 15% cash back. It's a festival of savings at hundreds of stores, including Doc Martens, Ninja Kitchen, and Hotels.com. Prep for summer and save big on beauty, travel, electronics, and more. It's one of Rakuten's biggest cash back events, And it's on May 6th through May 13th. Join today for free and get an extra 10% cashback boost. Go to Rakuten.com or download the Rakuten app today. That's R-A-K-U-T-E-N. Shoppers get it. I'm Margaret Brennan in Washington. And this week on Face the Nation, more severe weather across much of the U.S., and former President Trump prepares for his arraignment on criminal charges Tuesday in Manhattan. Powerful storms and tornadoes ripped through several states this weekend, killing at least 26. We'll have the latest. And as the former president prepares to be formally charged in a New York case involving hush money payments to a porn star, his political allies and his Republican presidential rivals are publicly standing by him and focusing on Manhattan District Attorney Alvin Bragg. They're trying to do all these legal gymnastics to try to act like it's a felony. This guy is doing politics. He has an agenda. That is not the rule of law. The indictment and facts of the case are still under seal, but we'll talk with the former U.S. attorney for the Southern District of New York and Bragg's former boss, Preet Bharara. Plus, Robert Costa talks to a key witness in the case, Mr. Trump's former personal attorney, Michael Cohen. This is really about accountability. I went to prison in part for for another man's dirty deeds. And of course, the politics of the case. Will the indictment hurt the former president's chances at winning the Republican nomination or help? I think the magic of 2016 has passed. But so far, two key campaign components, fundraising and poll numbers among Republicans are both up. Former Trump national security advisor and potential Republican presidential contender John Bolton will be here. Then, Washington's at an impasse on what, if anything, will work to stop mass shootings, particularly those in schools. We'll talk to Connecticut Democratic Senator Chris Murphy. He's one of many who have not given up. It's all just ahead on Face the Nation. Good morning and welcome to Face the Nation. We begin with the severe weather that affected millions this weekend in the South, Midwest and Northeast. Dozens of tornadoes touched down in at least eight states and there are more severe weather alerts for later today in parts of North Texas and Southern Oklahoma. CBS News correspondent Omar Villafranca is in hard hit Wynn, Arkansas this morning. Omar. Good morning. We are 100 miles east of Little Rock in Wynn, a town that took a direct hit from this tornado. And let me show you the kind of damage that residents are having to clean up. We're talking roofs ripped off of homes, trees that were knocked down. And look at this. This is turf from the high school football field, which is about a quarter mile away. The police chief says this town suffered, quote, total destruction. At least a dozen tornadoes sliced through Arkansas on Friday. But the one that hit wind basically cut the town in half. Four of the five people who died in Arkansas were killed in wind. We will ensure that every Arkansan uh, who needs assistance has it. The people come first and the paperwork will come second. The tornado caused major damage throughout the state. We had no idea it was doing this much damage out here. 
it was so fast. Jane Smith, an 80-year-old grandmother, surveyed what's left of her home. When the tornado hit, she huddled inside with neighbors. Drone footage showed the devastation caused by a tornado in this Little Rock neighborhood. The massive storm system unleashed over 50 tornadoes across the south and midwest on Friday and Saturday, killing at least 26 people. Here, this is where that tornado came across. Tennessee officials confirmed the largest number of storm-related deaths at seven. In Belvedere, Illinois, 90-mile-an-hour winds brought down the roof of the Apollo Theater where over 200 people were inside at a rock concert. Dozens were injured, some severely, and one person was killed. The storm system moved northeast last night. Delaware was hit by at least one tornado, and a 13-year-old girl was killed in Ohio when a tree fell on her home. And the weather down here in the south is not over. There's a possibility for more storms early this week. Margaret? Omar Villafranca reporting from Arkansas. And as Omar noted, the storms in Tennessee resulted in at least seven deaths. Governor Bill Lee said yesterday that the storm capped the worst week of his time as governor. His week, of course, began with the horrific shooting at Covenant School, a private elementary school in Nashville. Our Mark Strassman reports. Please hurry up. They're coming. They're coming. Nashville school massacre, another muzzle flashpoint about guns in America. Six people killed, three of them nine years old. These large um, mass public shootings, they represent about 1% of gun violence nationwide. Michael Anestis runs New Jersey's nonpartisan Gun Violence Research Center. One of its inescapable conclusions. Where there's more firearms, there's more firearm injury and death. America has roughly 400 million guns in private hands. Gun violence, like heart disease or opioids, qualifies as a public health crisis. During the COVID pandemic, the U.S. firearms homicide rate spiked by 35%. On average, gun violence kills more than 100 Americans a day. Just as unsettling, guns are now the number one cause of death among children. Every shooting has this vast ripple effect that affects so many more people and tears apart families and communities. Nashville is now one of those communities, like Parkland, like Buffalo, like Uvalde. So much indiscriminate carnage in a country polarized by what to do about it. Save our kids! Save our kids! Thousands of Tennesseans last week demanded state lawmakers limit access to guns, unlikely in a state where gun rights are expanding. At the federal level... It's not just legislation that solves these problems. It's paralysis. I have gone the full extent of my executive authority to do on my own anything about guns. Nashville's shooting sparked this congressional dust-up between Democrat Jamal Bowman and Republican Thomas Massey. Well, I don't listen to what I'm saying. Calm down, children are dying. Nine-year-old children. Nashville's grief is still raw. Weekend memorial services for Evelyn Dickhouse, Hallie Scruggs, and William Kenney. Reducing gun violence should be the number one priority for our country. Anything less, we are failing our children. It's Mark Strassman reporting from Nashville. And we are joined now by Connecticut Democratic Senator Chris Murphy. Good morning to you, Senator. Good morning. We have you here after some of the most tragic events in our country. And this week, three of the victims were just nine years old. This was a private Catholic school, or excuse me, Christian school attached to a church. Um, and people who survived that now know their teachers, their parents, their caregivers cannot keep them safe. Do we need to shift the conversation to supporting more trauma treatment? Is that where we are? I think we have to do all of the above. I mean, there's no doubt that our kids are going through something unique today. I just don't understand why we choose to live like this, why we choose to make our kids fear for their lives when they walk into their schools, why we choose to have children who grow up in violent neighborhoods fear for their lives when they walk to and from school. Only in America does this happen. 
And you can't explain it through a prism of mental illness or a lack of school security. Um, the thing that's different in the United States is the number of guns, the number of high-powered weapons of mass destruction, and the ease with which we allow criminals and dangerously mentally ill people to get those guns. So we've got to change the nation's gun laws. We've got to put more trauma resources into our schools, mm-hmm. um, but doing nothing cannot be an option. More school shootings than days in the year so far in 2023. One of the things you said this week is you would look to require more training for people buying automatic weapons. Explain that, because would that require more vetting of the person doing the buying? So last year, we passed the first gun safety measure, bipartisan, in 30 years. And we did that because we found common ground. Listen, I want After Uvalde. After Uvalde. I want to ban assault weapons. Uh, I think it's just absolutely unconscionable that we allow these weapons of war to be in commercial circulation. But there aren't the votes to do that. But there's not the votes to do that. So what are there the votes to do? Let's explore the potential of what's possible. And so what if we said, before you get an AR-15, you have to show that you are responsible, that you know how to operate it. What if we applied background checks universally simply to the purchase of those weapons? Mm -hmm. Ultimately, I want those weapons off the street, but I think we'd be a safer nation if we required just a little bit of training before you bought the most dangerous weapons commercially available. So the shooter in Tennessee apparently went to uh, five different places, bought seven different weapons. Um, Tennessee doesn't have a red flag law. It's unclear if it would have made a difference here since the parents of the shooter apparently claimed not to know the guns existed. But shouldn't the purchasing itself, stockpiling weapons, set off some kind of alarm somewhere? I think that the different states have different laws that would require some of those um, triggers uh, for law enforcement. But, but not I do, Tennessee. But not Tennessee. And I, and I do think that a proper red flag law in Tennessee could have made a difference here. If parents know that they have the opportunity um, to take firearms away from an individual in their family that they know is in crisis, um, then they are frankly going to be more vigilant uh, about searching for that potential connection to a weapon. Um, In Tennessee, they couldn't do anything about it, even if they knew about the weapons. And so what we know is that in states that have red flag laws, they are used responsibly and frequently to take guns away from people in crisis. Florida, a red state, has a red flag law that's been used 8,000 times to take weapons away from people who are contemplating violence against others or contemplating violence against themselves. They, They work. And if Tennessee had a red flag law and the parents knew about it, maybe this situation wouldn't have happened. The bill that you co sponsored, um, provided financial incentives for states to create red flag laws. Tennessee apparently just doesn't want one. Yeah. Tennessee's moving the other way, right? Tennessee is talking about allowing you to be able to carry loaded assault weapons on the streets. What we know is that states that have tougher, tighter gun laws have dramatically lower rates of gun violence. And so in Connecticut, our rate of gun violence is half that, one third that of Tennessee. So my hope is that this new federal funding that we passed on a bipartisan basis last year will prompt states like Tennessee to take a look at red flag laws. They're wildly popular. 80% of Americans want them. Uh, There's no political risk in enacting a red flag law. If Tennessee had it, maybe this wouldn't have happened. Um, Tennessee's governor, a Republican, is reportedly uh, proposing funneling millions now into new school security measures, including grants for private schools like where this happened to have armed guards. A version of this was brought up on the Senate floor. You had a pretty heated exchange with Senator Ted Cruz. But explain why you think he's wrong when he says this. I do not understand why our Democrat colleagues in this body do not support having police officers keep our kids safe. Why, when it comes to this issue, the only thing that interests them is disarming the people at home who pose no threat rather than protecting our kids. So Senator Cruz opposed our bipartisan legislation last year that would take weapons away from domestic abusers. So when he says that our interest is only in taking weapons away from people who pose no threat, um, he's squarely out of touch with the American people who don't think that domestic abusers should have guns. And what Senator Cruz's legislation is talking about is not just putting police officers with guns in schools, Mm -hmm. but teachers in our schools with firearms. 
my constituents in Connecticut, they want school security. They want door locks. They want more physical protection, but they do not want their teachers to be handed AR-15s, our schools loaded up with weapons. What we know in this country is that more weapons don't equal less crime. If more weapons equaled less crime, then we would be one of the safest places in the world. With the, his fellow Texas Senator, John Cornyn, who was your partner last correct, time, correct. Um, said, we've gone as far as we can go unless somebody identifies some area we didn't address. We heard President Biden say, I'm done here. Yeah. So is this really up to grassroots groups and state governments at this point? Is that the reality? Listen, I think if you had asked um, pundits uh, two months before we passed last year's bipartisan bill whether Congress was going to act on guns in 2022, people would have said it wasn't going to happen. Things change pretty quickly in Washington. And my goal is to try to find that common ground that John Cornyn is talking about. I'm not going to let the perfect be the enemy of the good. We've got to show parents and kids and families in this country that we can make bipartisan progress to try to make our country safer. That's why I'm talking not about an assault weapons ban this year, but around training, around raising the age, around background checks, just trying to make some progress to make sure that weapons are only getting into the hands of law abiding citizens. So I am open for any discussion with Republicans about how we can show this country that we take their kids' protection seriously. Doing nothing for Republicans on both sides of the aisle, conservative parents and progressive parents right now, is not an option. Senator Murphy, thank you for your time today. Thank you. We want to turn now to the historical first. Former President Trump is now the first president to be indicted. We do not yet know the charges against him, but he will be arraigned Tuesday in New York City. Arrangements are underway to handle security and processing, but it is likely to be quite a spectacle. Since word of the indictment came out Thursday evening, Mr. Trump and his allies have controlled the narrative on this case as the indictment remains under seal. A person familiar with the matter told CBS News that former President Trump is being charged with falsifying business records in the first degree, a felony. Our Robert Costa is in New York this morning. Good morning to you, Bob. We know this is 2 p.m. Tuesday in Manhattan. You have spoken with the Trump attorneys. What is their strategy at this point? Good morning, Margaret. The Trump lawyers say they want to immediately move to dismiss this case. That is going to be point number one. And there are discussions among some Trump allies about thinking about a venue change at some point, though at this early crossroads, they're not officially talking about that on the legal team because they have not yet seen the indictment. But you can expect a very aggressive strategy, both in public relations and legally from the Trump team at this point. We know there are roughly 30 counts against the former president. And you have spoken with one key witness here who spoke to the district attorney 22 times. This is former personal attorney Michael Cohen. What did he share? Sitting down with Michael Cohen yesterday in New York City, it's evident that he is going to be the crucial witness for the district attorney Alvin Bragg in this case, especially should it go to trial. But Cohen told us that this investigation is about far more than him. Let's listen. Yes, I lied to Congress at the direction of, in coordination with, and for the benefit of Donald J. Trump. And if there's anyone out there that thinks that that lie is going to prevent me from being the credible witness that I am, based on the documentation, the testimony, the emails, the recording, it's not going to happen. You brought up an interesting point. In your view, this case is bigger than Michael Cohen's testimony. Yes, I've never said that it was about me. This is not what so many people want to make it look like. Oh, it's Michael Cohen's vengeance against Donald Trump. That's not what this is about. This is solely about accountability. I should not be held accountable for Donald Trump's dirty deeds. Let him be held accountable. Let those in his orbit that are truly accountable, like Bill Barr, right, who he used to weaponize the Justice Department against his critics. Let them be held accountable because it saves and it preserves democracy. Are you ready to testify? Yes. Bob, to date, Republicans have largely circled the wagons around the former president. And this includes Florida's Governor Ron DeSantis. They've done it by attacking the Manhattan District Attorney. But then this morning, 
we have the former governor of Arkansas, Asa Hutchinson, on ABC News saying he's going to run for president and very clearly saying that Mr. Trump needs to drop out of the race. What's happening inside the party? It's a fascinating political moment. That Republican outrage publicly is also coupled privately with a lot of political calculation. Could there be an opening for a Trump critic, whether it's former Governor Hutchison or someone else, to now enter this 2024 Republican primary and seize on this new dynamic in the race where Trump has legal and political challenges and Florida Governor Ron DeSantis isn't in the race yet nor consolidating support. Talking to some donors this morning, Margaret, it's not just Hutchison who's on their minds. They're also thinking about trying to draft Virginia Governor Glenn Youngkin to think harder about jumping into this race sometime later this year. This is a fascinating race, Bob, and we're going to be very busy. Face the Nation will be back. Stay with us. Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. For more on the indictment of former President Trump, we go now to CBS legal analyst Ricky Kleeman. Good morning to you, Ricky. Good morning. Can you hear me? Okay, good. I'm glad you can hear me. Can you walk us through it? We've never seen anything like this before, literally. So what are the next few days going to look like with this arraignment of the former president? We expect the president to fly into New York City on Monday night. And what will happen on Tuesday morning is he will emerge from his residence at Trump Tower. He may or may not speak at that time. But he will be in the custody of the NYPD and his own Secret Service. I expect that there will be a motorcade that will take him from Trump Tower down to the courthouse. And at the courthouse is also the district attorney's office. The NYPD, as well as the Secret Service, who will never leave him, by the way. They're not supposed to. He is within their protection, and it's really within their circle. So they go into the DA's office. He must be processed like any other defendant. What does that mean? He will get a picture taken, which becomes a mugshot. In New York, mugshots are not usually released to the public. He will also be fingerprinted electronically, and he will be given a booking number. At the time that he receives that booking number, he is officially, quote unquote, under arrest. He then must wait, as any other defendant would, for the fingerprints to go through the electronic process of review. They'll go up to Albany, they'll bounce back. Mm -hmm. That takes usually a couple of hours. Right now, we are told that the arraignment itself is set for 2.15. He is then in the custody of the court personnel, as well as his Secret Service people and the NYPD. I do not expect him to be handcuffed. He will be brought into the courtroom, the indictment will be unsealed, and for the first time, the defendant, Donald J. Trump, and his attorneys, and the rest of us will learn what the charges are. Well, that's a great TikTok, Ricky, of what to expect. Uh, It seems the former president expects that he'll be able to hold a press conference that evening to discuss what happened back at his home in Florida. So can he expect to give that a round of remarks or will there be some sort of gag order? Well, I think one of the things that the president, former president, ought to consider, since he does like to give speeches, is perhaps he'd rather give that speech before he goes to court uh, at Trump Tower. 
Once he goes to court, in addition to the question of bail, there will be no bail here. It's not an offense that demands bail. But there may be some conditions that either the district attorney's office wants or the judge himself wants. And if the judge himself or the DA decides that there should be conditions, they're simple ones like turning in your passport, perhaps reporting your, on your travel. But the real question here, in light of the potentially inflammatory continuing statements of Mr. Trump, that the judge or the DA may ask the judge to impose a gag order on Donald Trump, on his lawyers. If a gag order is in place, the judge can't stop him from speaking, period. But the judge can certainly stop him from in any way talking about the case. Okay. A gag order would go to both sides. Both sides would have to remain silent. Okay. So the former president would be able to continue to campaign, but not in theory talk about the details of the case. We'll see what happens. Ricky Clayman, uh, I know you'll be covering it. Thank you this morning. There's been concern that Pope Francis would not be able to participate in Holy Week due to his being hospitalized for severe bronchitis. But we're happy to report the Pope's out of the hospital and he presided over Palm Sunday Mass this morning, addressing thousands. We'll be back in a moment. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crow portrays an ex-homicide detective, unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. Welcome back to Face the Nation. Joining us now is the former U.S. attorney for the Southern District of New York, Preet Bharara. Good morning. Good morning. Um, I do want to uh, mention to our viewers as well that you obviously know New York very well, yeah. um, but you also know uh, the district attorney, Alvin Bragg. I do. You hired him at one point. Yep. You endorsed him when he ran for this office. I did, and I supervised so, him for a while as well. Okay, so I want to dig into to your knowledge of that man, um, <laughs> who, who is now very much in the spotlight. But let me start first on the case itself. Um, the previous district attorney in Manhattan didn't prosecute this case. Uh, your former office, the Southern District of New York, also chose at the federal level not to move ahead with it. So what do you think is different this time? <clears throat> we don't know. Um, I know the man pretty well, Alvin Bragg, as you said. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, I don't know what the charges are. We've been speculating about them. Uh, maybe there's new evidence. Uh, different people uh, who are reasonable, uh, like Cy Vance is and like Alvin Bragg is, uh, can come to different conclusions about different matters. You know, there were two prosecutors in Alvin Bragg's office who resigned with great fanfare over a different set of charges that might have been brought against Donald Trump. Mm -hmm. And there was a difference of opinion about that. Uh, Alvin Bragg is a careful person, based on my experience with him, a deliberate person, you know, not an overtly political person. And he decided, based on things that we don't know about yet, because we haven't seen the indictment or any evidence at trial, that it was a worthwhile case to bring. I, I, I can't you know, speculate as to why uh, Cy Vance didn't bring the case or why my former office didn't bring the case, although there are some reasons to think maybe it was because they were concerned that Michael Cohen had not been fully forthcoming and they have a policy of not putting on witnesses as cooperating witnesses, if they haven't divulged everything about themselves and everyone else, that was a policy that was in place when I was the U.S. attorney. So different policies, different legal considerations may be the reason why there's a divergence, but mm -hmm. we don't know for sure. So uh, one of the things that CBS News has confirmed here is that the former president is being charged with falsifying business records in the first degree, which is a class E felony, yeah. if I understand it correctly. And that would require them to prove, in other words, have evidence here that it's more than the misdemeanor of falsifying records, that, that it was done to hide a second crime. 
That seems fairly complex. What kind of evidence do you need to have yeah. there? It's not that complex. It's done all the time. So, you know, the, the, the predicate offense, falsification of business records, is pretty mm-hmm. simple. Um, it seems to have been conceded in large part by various people, including some of the president's own lawyers, that uh, on the business records of the, of the company, it has been suggested that the payments made to Stormy Daniels and, and other payments were uh, legal fees when they obviously weren't. Michael Cohen was a pass-through for, you know, $100 uh, plus thousand dollars to someone else. And then the other crime we believe to be uh, campaign finance violation. But that part is fairly novel here. Well, in it, fact, it, the, the yeah. former Manhattan district attorney, Cy Vance, was on another network this morning uh, making that point. He said, we've historically filed cases of false documentation to a felony level when federal statutes were involved. But has never this has never been done with regard to federal election law. So would the Alvin Bragg, you know, who you said doesn't really take a lot of risks here and is not political, would he take this risk? Well, he's probably done <clears throat> legal analysis, and his people have told him that you can have a federal crime be the thing that's being concealed or being furthered by the falsification crime. Um, and just because it, it's never been a campaign finance violation before, I'm sure his people have told him and have research to back this up, that there's no distinction between one kind of federal violation or another. So uh, it is true that that's not been tested in court. And there are going to be legal challenges here. I don't think anybody thinks, and I haven't heard anybody say, even though we haven't seen the charges yet, that it's a slam dunk 100 percent winner. But I believe, based on the Alvin Bragg that I know, who is careful and was so careful as not to bring that other case that people were clamoring for him to bring, that he has sound legal ground to bring this one. The former Trump attorney general, Bill Barr, spoke about the indictment in an interview Friday. I want to hear what he had to say. It's the... uh archetypal uh, abuse of the prosecutorial function to engage in uh, a political hit job. And legally, I think it's, uh, it's uh, from what I understand, it's, uh, it's a pathetically weak case. You just told us that Alvin Bragg is not overtly political. That's the exact opposite impression from the former attorney general. Yeah, well, <clears throat> there are a lot of people who think the former attorney general was overtly political and weaponized the Justice Department, so it's, it's a little bit rich to hear him calling someone else political. But on the grounds that he says pathetically weak case. Yeah, well, we don't know that. We don't just know. Don't, you're saying until these charges are unsealed yeah, Tuesday, no one can speak with authority. Like I feel I've been talking about the, the case because I think we have some credible reporting and I think we have <clears throat> you know, good sources who are telling us what the case might be about. Mm-hmm. And we have Michael Cohen talking about it. Um, it does feel a little funny, given my prior job, to be openly speculating about the strength of a case before we've seen right. what the charges are. And by the way, even when we see the charges, um, we won't necessarily know what all the evidentiary basis for those charges are. I, mm-hmm. I believe it'll be a speaking indictment, um, which is parlance for lots of more detail than you sometimes need to have in an indictment. But we don't know the quality of the evidence. We can speculate about the credibility issues that Michael Cohen has. But beyond that, uh, you know, we know some of the documents. We know some of the checks that are signed in Donald Trump's own name to reimburse Michael Cohen for the, the hush money payment, 11 checks and all that continued, by the way, into Donald Trump's term as president when he was sitting in the Oval Office. But we don't know all the, all the evidence. And what's interesting to me is when people attack Alvin Bragg mm-hmm. ahead of time for being political and being weak, they are themselves doing the exact same thing, defending someone who is their political ally. Um, and we're going to talk about some of that later on with, with another guest on the show on the politics of this. But d- because you know Alvin Bragg, and, and this is the, I mean, Republicans aren't unified on a lot of things these days, but the unified Republican defense of Trump is not to talk at all about the case being right. built against him, but rather to attack Bragg himself. How would you um, characterize him in terms of policy? He ran as a Democrat to this office. Uh, is, does he have higher political ambitions? No, I, I don't know that he does. Um, when I said he's not overtly political, uh, obviously every district attorney in almost every jurisdiction in the, in the country, with the exception of a few, is a political office. You run for office. Um, the Alvin Bragg that I know has always thought about the facts and the law. And I keep going back to this point. If he was so overtly political and didn't mind bringing pathetically weak cases and he was on a witch hunt to get Donald Trump by whatever means possible and as soon as possible, mm-hmm. he would have brought this other case mm-hmm. that very well-respected prosecutors in his office were adamantly urging him to bring, and he didn't. To me, that indicates someone... And, and look, this case may fail. It may not go well. Maybe it'll be dismissed. I don't think so, because I think the law is probably on Alvin Bragg's side, 
but we'll, we'll see. Maybe he'll lose a trial. But the idea that this is frivolous, mm-hmm. when someone who has, go, has gone to prison, who's less culpable, right. and gone to prison at the direction of the person we're talking about now, Donald Trump, the idea that this is frivolous or purely political or stupid or anything else is nonsensical. Because falsifying business records on its face, whether it's a misdemeanor or a felony, is still a crime. Yeah, there should be one standard of justice, mm-hmm. right? And if there's a crime that's being brought, uh, that's being charged against people in New York City on a regular basis, and in particular has, has been charged um, in this kind of context, then to say that someone, because he was the former president of the United States, should get away with it doesn't seem right. I understand the concerns, the prudential democratic concerns. I, I'm not giving them short shrift. That if you're going to charge a former president in, in an unprecedented way, you want to be careful. You want to have your T's crossed, your I's dotted. You want to do it not in a casual way. You want to be very, very serious about it and explain in the documents that you file in court and in the indictment that this is serious and someone else has gone to prison for this. And I get that we don't want to be in a position where we're incentivizing local prosecutors to do this kind of thing. But on the other hand, it is not frivolous. It is not silly. All right. Preet Bharara, thank you for Thanks. your insights today. We turn now to John Bolton, who served as national security advisor under former President Trump. Good to have you here. Glad to be back. So uh, as we were just discussing, uh, Republicans seem to be avoiding explicitly defending Mr. Trump's actions and instead attacking the district attorney of Manhattan. But we don't know the details of these charges. We won't until Tuesday, if if then. Um, Don't you see there being a danger for Republicans to do that because they are still aligning themselves with the former president, who I know you are sharply critical of. Yeah, I think it's a big mistake politically for Republicans to do that. And I think it's important to stress that in this case that involves hush hush money to a porn star to cover up an affair that later involves cooking his company's books, you have not heard a single Trump defender stand up and say, oh, that's not the Donald Trump I know. Uh, And it goes to the question of character and fitness for the presidency. Uh, I think that uh, uh, Trump's obviously trying to attack the prosecutor and his supporters are following that. Look, prosecutors have broad discretion and they should, but they don't have unlimited discretion. Uh, if Trump thinks there's prosecutorial misconduct here, mm-hmm. violating the laws, violating the prosecutor or lawyer's ethical obligations, he has plenty of opportunities to raise that. But if he can't show that Alvin Bragg has violated the law or violated the uh, ethics rules right. that are applicable, then he's got to run his own chances. And to my mind, there is a kind of rough justice here. Because it's deeply ironic that a person who spent a good part of his four years in the White House trying to weaponize the Justice Department against his political enemies Mm -hmm. is now saying he's the victim of persecution. It's sort of what comes around goes around, Mr. Trump. So you agree that the Justice Department was weaponized under the Trump administration? I I, I can attest to it personally. I I don't need to look at other stories. What do you mean by that? Well, when Trump and his lawyers in the White House and in the Justice Department brought both a civil and a criminal case against me Mm, for publishing a book that didn't go through the pre-publication review process when they know that it had been cleared in Mm -hmm. the regular order, that is abusing the Justice Department. And there are plenty of other examples besides. Well, you brought up your book. Um, In it, you talk about President Trump being obsessed with media coverage of his former attorney, Michael Cohen, who's now very much at the heart of this trial um, uh, case, who was on trial himself. And you said it was a big distraction in the midst of the trip to Hanoi, where the former president was negotiating with Kim Jong-un. I mean, nuclear security. But he was obsessed with the Cohen case. Um, Do you look at that differently now? Um, Do you think there was a real reason for him to be worried, or was it just a PR concern? Well, I think I think he does have reason to be concerned about the substance of the case here. And I think while we're all obviously and appropriately focused on the indictment, that's just the beginning. Uh, The real issue here is whether Alvin Bragg gets a conviction at some point in the near term or whether Trump springs free, because the political implications are vastly different. Well, I mean, the timetable for this goes right into 2024, and we don't have clarity on that. Well, we'll we'll see whether Trump runs the courtroom or whether the judge runs the courtroom. What do you mean? 
Well, the, the, I, I have no doubt a lot of trees are going to die to support the motions to dismiss the case that delay, Trump's going to file. Mm -hmm. So if the judge keeps the pace going, you know, people talk about the importance of speedy trial. Uh, let's see if we can get one here. So you said it was a mistake for Republicans in, in messaging around this. But even Florida's governor, Ron DeSantis, who I know in the past you've said good things about, came out and said, oh, it's a misdemeanor. Oh, this is political. Yeah. Misdemeanor still crime. Um, but, I mean, the only Republican of prominence that has really remained silent that I've noticed is, is Mitch McConnell. Well, Most I think, everyone's defending in some way. I think Asa Hutchison said earlier today, in, in addition to announcing he he's running for the, for the presidency, that Trump should true. stand aside. And I think that's an absolute minimum. Look, Trump is basically extorting. That's two plus you, that's three. That Trump is basically extorting the Republican Party. He's threatening that if he doesn't get the nomination, he'll blow up the presidential campaign and whoever the Democrats and nominate And it seems to be win. persuasive. Well, I think what Republicans need to do to save the party and, frankly, to save the country is they can be as concerned about poor Donald Trump being mistreated by this prosecutor as they want. But they, the reward, the cure for that mistreatment is not to make Donald Trump the Republican presidential nominee. Th those are two completely different yeah. subjects. I understand your point. You have said in the past, if this indictment happens, um, it's rocket fuel to his campaign to get the Republican nomination for the president. And you think that's what Democrats want, essentially, yeah, I, because they, it benefits whoever the Democratic nominee is, presumably the current president. I, I'm not worried about Alvin Bragg hurting Donald Trump. I'm worried about Alvin Bragg benefiting Donald Trump. And this is where I think the outcome of the case is so important. If Trump is acquitted or, or he gets the case dismissed because it's not legally sufficient or for whatever reason, that will be rocket fuel because he can say, I told you it was a political prosecution. I told you I was being picked on and now I've been vindicated. If he's convicted, however, uh, at some point b b before the campaign ends, mm -hmm. I think that will have a very different impact on people. You can, you can say it's a sleazy case and it involves sleazy people. Yeah. But if he's convicted of a crime, I think most Americans actually don't want a convicted felon to be their president. So if he does end up being the nominee, will you support him as the Republican nominee? Absolutely not. I didn't support him in 2020. I wanted to vote for a real conservative and neither there was neither the Republican nor the Democratic yeah. nominee were real conservatives. So I wrote in a name and I would do the same. So you have said you might be considering a run. Have you, you ruled that out or are you still considering? No, I'm still considering it. I have to say watching the response to the indictment has not been encouraging for the future of the party. Trump, yeah. Trump is a cancer on the Republican Party. We need his supporters. That's absolutely true. Most of them have mm -hmm. correct values. The distortion does it is the magnetic that, field of Donald Trump. Well, does it disappoint you that someone you have in the past said good things about Ron DeSantis is part part of the group circling the wagons around Mr. Trump. Well, I believe in redemption for everybody, so I, th <laughs> I think there's still a way ahead here. But I tell you, what, what, the, what the people really want in the nominee, I think, is somebody who will say, this conduct is unacceptable to us, and we have higher values, we have higher principles than simply defending whatever Donald Trump does. So you're willing to forgive that of DeSantis. You also, uh, however, have to be upset with his uh, foreign policy positions. Um, he said, while the U.S. has many vital national interests, becoming further entangled in a territorial dispute between Ukraine and Russia is not one of them. He tried to soften that a little bit afterwards. But it reveals kind of this thread we've seen reflected in some House Republicans of more of an isolationist or at least less likely to be as muscular. Well, as I said before, I was disappointed that uh, Ron DeSantis said that. I'm, I'm hoping that his view is changing. Uh, but I think this isolationism, I attribute a large part of it to Donald Trump. Not that he has any coherent philosophy, but his knee-jerk reaction drives uh, people to take positions that I think they otherwise wouldn't take. I think you go back to a Reaganite foreign policy and a Reaganite optimism that it's mourning in America. In fact, it's always mourning in America. It's not Donald Trump's version. Yeah. It's Ronald Reagan's that will get people's support. John Bolton, thank you for your time today. Thank we'll you. be back in a moment. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive. And start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax. 
the way car buying should be. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Joining us now to discuss Russia's detention of Wall Street Journal reporter Evan Gorskovich is the journal's editor-in-chief, Emma Tucker, and she joins us from New York. Good morning to you. Good morning, Margaret, and thanks very much for having me on. And also, I just want to say before we get going, thank you to CBS and all the other news networks and news outlets that are continuing to focus on this story. It's really important for us to keep focused on Evan's plight um, at a time when I know the news is very busy. Well, we agree with you. Um, And I want to ask you, this morning, Secretary of State Antony Blinken spoke with his Russian counterpart, Sergei Lavrov. It is very rare that they speak. uh, But according to the State Department, the secretary had grave concern over the unacceptable detention of a journalist, and that is Evan. Uh, What do you know about this? Has any of it helped Evan's case? Well, one of the big problems uh, in this case is we know so little. Uh, we know very, we, to the best of our knowledge, we know that Evan is being held in a prison in Moscow, but we haven't been able to get any messages to him. We haven't heard anything from him. There's been very little official information. The fact that um, Secretary of State Antony Blinken spoke to his counterpart today is hugely reassuring to us. Uh, we know that the US government's taking the case very seriously right up to the top. And as I say, that, that for us has been you know, gratifying to know that they take it as seriously as they do. There is a legal determination uh, being wrongfully detained, and it, it comes with it a little bit more leeway for the fight that uh, the US government can put up here. Uh, what difference do you think that will make in this case, and how quickly will it come? Well, uh, we're hoping that the government will move swiftly to um, uh, designate Evan as wrongfully detained. It can take a long time, but we're hoping we're optimistic it'll move a bit more swiftly in this case. When that happens, it's an official recognition that the charges against Evan are entirely bogus. Um, And once that official recognition comes, things can then move a bit more rapidly. Well, we know uh, that when Evan was taken, uh, there was also a very swift hearing. His lawyer was not allowed in. Uh, The State Department said that U.S. officials were not given any access to him. Um, Do you have any timeline? It sounds like you don't have much more clarity, but will he be given what are supposed to be the legal standards here of access? Well, I think that's that's anyone's guess. Uh, We are hopeful that A lawyer will get to see him next week. We're pressing constantly uh, for reassurance that he's not being mistreated in any way. Um, But we're dealing with the Russian authorities here. It's it's difficult to know what will happen next. I'm, I'm, I'm optimistic that we'll be able to make some sort of contact with him next week. But who knows? Uh, You know, from the very top of the Russian government, we have seen this commented on. Vladimir Putin's own spokesperson claims Evan was caught red-handed. According to our our CBS uh, contributor, John Sullivan, who was former U.S. ambassador to Moscow, he said the Wall Street Journal is too high profile an organization for this to have been a mistake, for this not to have been targeted. And it had to have been approved at the very highest levels in Moscow. Do you have any idea what the motivation was? I have no idea. Evan, um, Evan is a very talented, experienced reporter. He, he's accredited to report from Russia. And he was on, a, on an assignment doing what he always does. He was gathering information. He was reporting from the ground to provide our readers with eyewitness accounts of what it's like to be in Russia at the moment. He, it's a complete outrage that he was uh, arrested like this. And I, I, you know, I really don't understand. None of us can, the, 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 what the Russian authorities are saying is, is utter nonsense. 
There was some Russian reporting. He was working on a story about the military and others potentially about a mercenary group known as the Wagner Group. Was that true? Uh, Evan was doing what 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 he always does. He was out reporting. Uh, he's he's a very experienced reporter. He's covered all sorts of stories. He was on a mission uh, over in the east, writing about. Um, I don't. Uh, he was just doing what he always does. He was news gathering, and talking to his contacts out there. Um, I know that I've read you've pulled your Moscow bureau chief from her post. Um, how important is it to be able to continue to report from Russia? And do you plan to be able to continue this in some way? Well, look, reporting out of Russia has become increasingly difficult, not just for foreign reporters, but especially for Russian reporters. Um, you know, the Wall Street Journal is committed to covering uh, stories from Russia, from stories from around the world. Um, but we're also, obviously, we put out the safety of our journalists first. A lot of other news organizations do, no longer have a presence in Russia. It's, it's clearly, and particularly with this, what's happened to Evan, Russia is sending a very, you know, a bad signal that it's not a safe place for journalists, even journalists who are accredited to work there, mm -hmm. to work from. Yeah. So, you know, yes. we are committed to covering Good. The, the news. Uh, we are also committed to the safety of our journalists. So important. Emma Tucker, thank you for your time. We wish you well. We'll be right back. That's it for us today. Thank you all for watching. Until next week, for Face the Nation, I'm Margaret Brennan. Today's guests were Connecticut Democratic Senator Chris Murphy, former National Security Advisor John Bolton, former U.S. Attorney for the Southern District of New York, Preet Bharara, CBS News legal analyst Ricky Klayman, and Wall Street Journal Editor-in-Chief Emma Tucker. The executive producer of Face the Nation is Mary Hager. This broadcast was directed by Shelley Schwartz. Face the Nation originates in CBS News in Washington. For more Face the Nation, we're online at facethenation.com, and you can follow Face the Nation and CBS Radio News on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Face the Nation is also rebroadcast on our CBS News streaming network on Sundays at 1.30, 4. 10 p.m. Eastern, and again at 4 a.m. the next morning. And it's available through our apps, CBS News and Paramount+. Plus. If you like Face the Nation with Margaret Brennan, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at Wondery.com survey. Catch every episode of 60 Minutes, America's most watched news magazine show, as a podcast. Hear in-depth investigations across politics, news, and entertainment on your schedule. Listen to 60 Minutes ad-free on Wondery Plus. Are you ready for an all-new season of Survivor? You better be, because Survivor 46 is here, and it's 90 minutes of twists and turns you don't want to miss. Better yet, after each episode, there's a brand new episode of On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast. Each week, we go behind the scenes of the episode's biggest moments, taking you into the how and the why things happened. And this season, we're very lucky to be joined by an expert, the winner of Survivor 45, Devaya Daris. What is up? I'm thrilled to be joining this team and to be giving you my take on how and the why players made the moves they did, what it takes to outwit, outplay, and outlast, and to ask Jeff some questions because even after 26 days out there, there is still a lot for me to uncover. Bring it, D. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcast.